Could changes to guilty be on the horizon? Senators Wyden, Brown, and Warner released a framework to raise the tax on guilty. That's the global intangible low taxed income part of an overhaul to modify the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Also in their crosshairs is FIDI, F-D-I-I, or the Foreign Derived Intangible Income, and BEAT, the Base Erosion Anti-Abuse Tax. Will these changes achieve the senator's collective goal of increasing investment domestically? And what does it mean for R&D right here in the United States? To lead this discussion, I'm handing things off right now to the director of R&D Tax Credits at Cross-Border Solutions, Rahim Walji. Rahim, you have the floor. Thank you, Matthew. Really appreciate it. And I'd like to welcome back Daniel Bunn, VP of Global Projects at the Tax Foundation. Daniel, how are you doing, sir? Doing all right. Thanks for having me again. No, no problem. We had such a great conversation last time. Couldn't pass up another opportunity to talk to you again. Well, thanks. So I think, you know, we normally start out talking, you know, from a cross-border solutions standpoint, normally talk about R&D at the outset. We've got a couple of topics here that relate to R&D, but I think some of our audience members may not be as as familiar with some of the terminology and, and what we're going to be talking about today and picking your brain on. So if you could, can we start with an overview of guilty? Tell us what it is, what it applies to, and, and why it was introduced. Yeah, that's a really good starting spot. So guilty, global intangible low tax income, was introduced in the tax reform in 2017. Now, the backstory to this is a little bit complicated and convoluted. Prior to tax reform in 2017, the U.S. had a worldwide tax system with deferral, which meant if you were a U.S. multinational, you could earn profits overseas. And if you kept those profits overseas, potentially a low tax jurisdiction and some sort of holding company structure, then you wouldn't have to pay U.S. tax. If you brought your foreign earnings back to the U.S., then you would have to pay U.S. tax on those. Bipartisan working groups looked at this system and said, no, this isn't good. This is incentivizing companies to hold earnings outside the U.S. We need a complete change of the system. There was a move towards a territorial system, which allows companies to bring back those foreign earnings to their U.S. shareholders. But at the same time, with a territorial system, you have a problem with creating new loopholes and new games that companies could play to utilize foreign low-tax jurisdictions. So a lot of countries around the world have been working through this as you know they transitioned from worldwide to territorial systems over the last you know, several decades. And there's all sorts of anti-abuse rules out there. And the U.S. ended up adopting a relatively strong anti-abuse system, which includes global and tangible low-tax income. So now if you're a company that has foreign earnings, you can certainly bring those foreign earnings back to the U.S. without additional U.S. tax. But if your foreign earnings are below a certain level of taxation, then there is current U.S. tax on those. So if you have profits in excess of a 10% return on foreign invested assets, then guilty would apply to you. So, you know, for some companies, you're going to have significant foreign profits or foreign profit margins and get caught up by guilty. Now, guilty is kind of a tax on top of what foreign taxes might be paid. There is partial foreign tax credit, 80% foreign tax credit that's applied. But generally speaking, the tax rate on guilty ranges between 10.5 
and 13.125. Now, there's all sorts of different wrinkles. It's a complex kind of arrangement because guilty didn't really replace the old international rules. It was kind of layered on top of them. You might find yourself, even though in theory, you would have a 13.125 top rate from the U.S. perspective on your foreign earnings. Some companies might have domestic U.S. expenses that get allocated to foreign earnings, and they end up with tax rates on guilty in the high teens and potentially low 20s, depending on how much of your U.S. expenses have to be allocated to your foreign earnings. So in general, you're, you're still able to have your foreign earnings taxed at a lower rate than the 21% U.S. corporate tax rate. There's a recognition in guilty that you are going to be paying some taxes on those foreign earnings, but guilty you know, it's in the name, intangible, low tax income. You know, it's in general trying to target through a kind of formulaic approach, these foreign earnings that are large profits over tangible foreign assets and that are booked in lower tax jurisdictions. Thank you very much for that overview. I think that sets a good foundation for what we want to talk about today. So, you know, you've, you've given us a, a, a good summary. You've talked about you know, how it applies, what some of the math is even. What are some ways that companies are trying to reduce their guilty tax burden? Yeah, so this, this is an important piece because it's something that the senators kind of called out in their white paper on international tax changes. So guilty, I, as I mentioned, is a tax on profits in excess of a 10% return on foreign assets. The argument that the senators make and that the administration even has been making is that if you increase your foreign tangible assets, then you're reducing your guilty burden. So that's, you know, kind of one way. And and I'll say, you know, this is a possible route, but that's not necessarily the evidence that I would say would follow up on those senators' points about guilty having an offshoring incentive. So you can have a corporate structure where you have a foreign manufacturing facility, but then you maybe contract out distribution or marketing services or lower margin kind of activities. And then guilty because of this 10% carve out of foreign tangible assets, maybe you acquire some of those distribution facilities. That doesn't necessarily mean you're offshoring a distribution facility from the US to abroad because really, you know, distribution is about the local market. But that is one way to kind of dilute your guilty to have a larger foreign tangible asset base. Another way, and this gets into the complicated layering of our tax system, where you have some of these 2017 rules on top of pre-existing rules, is through subpart F. Now, subpart F has existed for many years. It was around way before tax reform. It's a set of rules that allow the U.S. to tax foreign passive income. So if you're a company that previously you wanted to make sure that your foreign earnings were active income to kind of avoid subpart F and benefit from deferral, you're looking at guilty and saying, well, guilty is now a tax on foreign active income. How much of my foreign active income could I you know, shift into some sort of passive category so that I could get you know, potentially better foreign tax credit treatment or more certainty with respect to the longevity of various guidance and different planning mechanisms that have been available for subpart F. There's also a potential kind of planning point for companies around your foreign tax profile. So guilty provides a blending mechanism 
So if you have foreign earnings, both in a high tax jurisdiction and in a low tax jurisdiction, those earnings get blended together before calculating your guilty. And for a lot of companies, having you know high tax earnings and lower tax earnings gives you, a, in a sense, a better guilty profile than just having low tax earnings in foreign jurisdictions. So being able to blend different you know, tax profiles, high tax, low tax, is another way to reduce guilty burden. And there's also a set of rules that have come out since guilty was adopted that allows a high tax exclusion on an annual basis. Companies could say, okay, I have some foreign earnings that are taxed at 90% of the U.S. corporate rate, U.S. corporate rate at 21%, 90% of that at 18.9%. So if I have foreign earnings that are in France or Germany, high tax jurisdictions, I can carve those out from guilty and make it a little bit easier on me if, again, to an earlier point, I have a lot of domestic expenses that have to be allocated to those foreign earnings. Whether it's your extra foreign investment in tangible assets or planning into subpart F or this sort of mixing between high tax and low tax, or even taking advantage of the high tax exclusion. There's a lot of different ways that companies could look at their current situation and see whether or not they could minimize their exposure to guilty using any of these tools. Fantastic. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. And so, you know, with all of that being said, it may be worth saying that, you know, there are those who want to continue to lower or reduce their guilty tax burden, or ideally, you know, in the, in the case of most companies, remove it altogether because it tends to increase tax liability. However, when you look at the proposal that these senators are offering, they actually want to raise this percentage which seems contra to, to what, what the taxpayers would like to see, the, the corporations would like to see. What do they propose raising guilty to, and what's their rationale in this proposal for doing that? So I think it's really important to put guilty in an international context at this point. As I've said, guilty taxes foreign active earnings. So if you have a factory overseas with real equipment and real employees, you could potentially get hit by guilty if, again, your earnings on that factory are above a 10% return on tangible assets. That is kind of a break from a lot of countries' approach to taxing foreign earnings. A lot of countries, including the U.S. through subpart F, have rules that target foreign passive earnings. But when it comes to active earnings, it's basically a thought that, you know, the foreign jurisdiction, 
they have the rights to choose how those activities are taxed. It's not, you know, back to the U.S. to say, oh, that activity needs to pay extra tax to the U.S. But but Guilty has a really broad base relative to a lot of rules that are out there in the world. And a lot of companies look at this, a lot of policymakers look at this and they say, what's the point of taxing active earnings? One answer is that guilty kind of simplifies this judicious distinction between passive and active and just uses a formula, makes tax enforcement maybe a little bit easier. And then, you know, another argument is that you want to be able to have enforcement mechanisms that kind of go beyond the various regulations that apply to intercompany transactions or tax planning and low tax jurisdictions and things like that. So that's that's where a lot of policy thinkers and taxpayers, when they're looking at guilty, they're saying, okay, this is this is really weird. The US is actively taxing foreign active earnings. And then the senators in the white paper mention, you know, maybe increasing that rate. Now in the white paper, they don't mention a specific rate. They are kind of holding their cards close on that. The Biden administration has said that they want a tax rate on guilty of 21%. So double the 10.5% kind of low rate on guilty all the way up to 21%. And they are talking about this in the sense, again, that they see guilty as an incentive to offshore. And I would have to disagree with them. And, you know, even though I recognize there's kind of an incentive to increase foreign tangible assets, that's different from saying that the benefit to any new activity is better off in a foreign jurisdiction than a U.S. jurisdiction. The U.S. lowered its corporate tax rate by 14 percentage points. We introduced expensing and all sorts of other incentives to invest in the U.S. And I don't think the tangible asset carve out from guilty is that much of a larger incentive to offshore than, and in fact, I think it's much smaller incentive to offshore than we had prior to tax reform. Now, the senators are essentially saying, no, we're, you know, we think this is an offshoring incentive. We want to close that off and in fact penalize companies that are doing a lot of activities overseas with a higher rate on guilty. Again, it's not clear where that rate's going to come down at, but I, I think it is worth mentioning that guilty is already scheduled to go up. The rate on guilty is already scheduled to go up to around 16.4% after 2025. That was something baked into the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act as policymakers were, you know, members of Congress were trying to figure out how to make the numbers work for that reconciliation package back in 2017. It seems like the, you know, these Democratic members of the Senate are looking at this and saying, no, we want a higher tax on foreign earnings, that this carve out for 10% of tangible assets was not justified. But there's also potential for some simplifications that I, I think we'll talk about a little bit later. So ultimately, you have obviously taxes on, on corporations here in the U.S., which, you know, some argue whether corporations are really paying significant amounts of tax at the end of the day, right? That's a separate debate. But you have the guilty piece of it, right, which is now the foreign income aspect of it, right? So companies who decide to go to other jurisdictions, perhaps to achieve lower tax rates and things of that nature, you you now have that aspect of it. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, there's some reference in the proposal to sort of a country by country system, as opposed to sort of the single average. What are your thoughts on that? And maybe if you want to give two sentences or so about what they're getting at in terms of the country by country system, and then would love your thoughts on that piece. Yeah. So on the various other aspects of the white paper, I'd say there's the country by country piece, and then also the high tax exclusion piece. I think those are kind of a pair. So 
guilty currently allows companies to average their high tax earnings with their low tax earnings. And I mentioned even earlier that, you know, that's a potential opportunity for minimizing your guilty exposure. Maybe you have a little bit more high tax to balance out your low tax, but that still means you're going to have some earnings in relatively low tax jurisdictions that aren't taxed at a full 10.5% because of that averaging and that offsetting. And what the senators are intending to do is create a system where the minimum rate would apply on a country-by-country basis. No longer saying, on average, we want guilty to apply at a 10.5% rate, but no, if you're in a zero-tax jurisdiction, the full 10.5 applies, or whatever rate, you know, likely a higher rate, or whatever other jurisdiction, go one by one. And then the challenge with that, I think, is pretty significant. If you ever talk to a tax advisor or somebody in a and C-suite role for for tax or finance, they will talk about how difficult it would be to calculate foreign tax credits on a country-by-country basis. These folks talk about your baskets of tax credit, foreign tax credits, and your guilty basket, it has an 80% haircut on it by the design of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And if you're calculating your guilty basket, not on kind of a global foreign earnings averaging, but calculating it country-by-country, That's a whole lot more record keeping, a whole lot more challenging to figure out the tax profile of any individual investment opportunity kind of over the long run. And it's going to be more significant for businesses when they are making those decisions is thinking like how much more exposure they'll have to U.S. tax simply by investing abroad. So going country by country on guilty would make it much more salient to those sorts of decisions. Now, the white paper also mentions essentially writing into statute this high tax exemption. So I mentioned earlier that current guilty rules allow for foreign earnings that have been taxed at 18.9% or above to be excluded from the guilty calculation. And the white paper from the Senate Democrats essentially considers whether it'd be good to have a permanent and mandatory high tax exclusion, where if you're a company and you have earnings in jurisdictions where you are paying a high tax that, you know, it's not an option of whether you exclude those foreign earnings from guilty or not, but that it's sort of mandatory. And that would kind of potentially simplify things relative to the country by country approach. So if you have a high tax route that's, you know, maybe 15% effective rate and above, and then a low tax route that's 15% and below, then you're only calculating an additional, one additional foreign tax credit basket. Whereas previously, you just did everything for guilty and lumped in and average, then you would calculate your, this proposal kind of envisions one high tax basket and one low tax basket for guilty. And I think that could simplify things somewhat, but it's really unclear how that would work, essentially because this is a white paper at this point and not actual legislation. Great point, right? These are just thoughts about what the potential opportunities are. And and in terms of the country by country... On that point, if if I could just interrupt real fast, these thoughts, one thing that's interesting to me about these thoughts is that it essentially envisions the structure of the international rules from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act continuing. If you read that white paper, there's, you know, almost nothing that would make sense to somebody reading that white paper in 2016. All of this is basically saying the Democrats are looking at ways, you know, sometimes substantive tweaks, but like mostly tweaking the existing structure of the international rules of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Daniel, definitely agree with you. There are a number of provisions within the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act 
and a number of the programs coming to a sunset that are leading to a lot of different discussions around what the implications are going to be and what needs to happen next in order to either continue progress in certain areas or modify the practices in order to meet the needs that are that are presenting themselves, you know, especially over the last year or so. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai slash rd. That's xbs.ai slash rd. We've been talking a little bit you know, mostly focused around guilty and FDII and a couple of things. Let's let's turn and shift gears a little bit towards the R&D space. And within the white paper, there's some proposals about adding an incentive for R&D work here in the United States. Can you talk us through what's been proposed there and what the senators hope to achieve with this particular incentive? Yeah, so on FDII, the foreign-derived intangible income provision, this white paper essentially proposes to get get rid of it or significantly change it in ways that, you know, it would be questionable whether it's still the same thing as previous policy. So the foreign-derived intangible income, just to provide a little background here, was meant as a pair to guilty. So guilty is a lower tax rate on foreign active earnings. And FDII is a lower tax rate on domestic earnings related to intangible assets held in the U.S. So you could get a 13.125% tax rate on earnings from U.S. exports based on U.S. held IP. And a pretty big incentive, not only for multinationals, but for a lot of U.S. domestic companies that are simple exporters and they have their IP in the U.S. and they do their manufacturing in the U.S. and they sell overseas and they can enjoy the benefits of FDII. Now, it seems from the white paper that these members of the Senate Finance Committee are responding to two things. Number one, in getting rid of or changing, substantively changing FDII, they recognize there's still going to be a need for incentives to do R&D investment in the U.S. So maybe instead of a company just being able to be eligible for FDII because they have their intellectual property assets in the U.S. Maybe, you know, the incentive is tied towards the R&D happening in the U.S. I'm not sure how much of a change that would be for a lot of companies, but essentially that would be a benefit directly tied to the amount of R&D spending in the U.S. rather than just having the IP in the U.S. And this ties into what a lot of countries have been doing with their patent boxes at the behest of the OECD to require substance metrics to be able to say, no, it's not just about the location of the IP, but also related to management functions and other activities in exploiting the use of the IP or even with the R&D side of it, with the design of the IP happening in the same tax jurisdiction 
as the tax benefits from any R&D regime. So in a way, it would turn FDII from something that looks like an export subsidy into something that looks a bit more like European-style patent boxes. Not sure what the rate would be, but it would be some sort of R&D tie to FDII. It's possible that there would be other R&D incentives that they're considering or that they would put in once this becomes live legislation. But that's what I think kind of works here. And you have to have some sort of balancing act because if there's a lower tax on foreign earnings than you have on domestic earnings when it comes to the exploitation of IP, then you are going to have an incentive to offshore. So whereas in the administration's plan where they clearly eliminate FDII and have a lower foreign rate on U.S. foreign earnings than the domestic rate, the 28 rate versus the 21 rate, you're definitely going to have an incentive to offshore there. So I think the Senate Democrats are saying, okay, maybe there's something within FDII that's reasonable to have this balance between foreign development of IP and exploitation of IP versus domestic development of IP and exploitation of IP and being able to reconfigure FDII into something that, again, no longer looks like an export subsidy, but looks more like something like a patent box. Right. I think that makes perfect sense, right? You don't want to encourage companies to to offshore the R&D work and activities and all the expenses that go along with it. It makes sense to balance out a little bit and offer, you know, an incentive to maintain that and retain that here in the U.S. Right, exactly. And I think it's also worth thinking about as far as the R&D incentives and existing R&D credits that, you know, one other piece of this that we haven't gotten to yet is the BEAT and how senators at a recent hearing essentially excoriated the BEAT for eliminating some or, or reducing the value of some credits that they think are pretty valuable. As the old adage says, you know, you threw the baby out with bathwater and being able to bring back some sort of meaningful benefit for multinationals to do their R&D in the U.S. without that getting carved away either through the reform of FDII or through the existing beat is something that a lot of policymakers are, are, are really interested in. You mentioned beat, so let's definitely talk a little bit about that. So the base erosion and anti-abuse tax, what do the senators propose in the white paper to do with beat and how does it contribute to their goal of increasing domestic R&D Yeah, so their, their problem with the beat Well, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act essentially brought in two new minimum taxes. One is guilty, which is a minimum tax on foreign earnings. And then the BEAT, which is a minimum tax connected to the amount of cross-border deductible payments that a company might have. Now, if you get caught up in the BEAT, you can end up having your incentives for domestic investment in things like renewable energy or low-income housing or job creation in low-income neighborhoods, all these sorts of tax benefits that are, you know, bipartisan getting eroded. So, you know, if you're a company that looks like it's going to benefit from these things, and these are things that Congress cares about incentivizing, the beat kind of runs across the purposes of those things. Now, the beat was meant to put a limit on profit shifting where you could have a lot of cross-border deductible payments that minimize your exposure to U.S. taxes and kind of maximize the profits you have booked in lower tax jurisdictions. But the beat accomplishes this through essentially a 10% surtax on top of a company's regular tax once a company hits a certain threshold 
of cross-border deductible payments. Now, the approach from the senators is to say, okay, well, maybe we can change the tax base for the beat so that these incentives that we put into the tax code or additional incentives for R&D or additional incentives for, you know, special activities or reshoring or whatever aren't also eroded by the beat. The senators really want to fix that, you know, essentially allowing corporations to deduct the full amount of R&D tax credits or, you know, have that benefit without it affecting the beat. Daniel, in the news recently, there's been some talk about a global minimum tax. The OECD has weighed in on this, the Biden administration, the EU. There's a lot of different inputs being given and a lot of different conversations happening around this particular topic. And some recent news came out. Can you sort of summarize what's what's happening in that space right now? Yes, absolutely. So this is helpful context. A lot of times, in fact, I think the majority of times when we think of tax policy, we think of it as being a purely domestic discussion. That is certainly not the case when it comes to all these things that we've just discussed with guilty, FDII, and the beat. There's an international flavor to this. When these policy changes were adopted in 2017, other countries looked at the U.S. approach on taxing foreign earnings and said, hey, maybe it's time for a true global minimum tax. Maybe other countries could take the guilty model and the beat model and turn it into a global project that minimizes tax competition, you know, where countries are providing low rates or broad carve-outs. And then also, so it would be a backstop against just general corporate behavior that minimizes exposure to, to domestic tax. So countries around the world have been working since tax reform, essentially, to figure out a way to design a true global minimum tax. Now, discussions last summer stalled somewhat because there are, you know, large portions of this that are truly political discussions rather than what I would consider, you know, tax policy discussions. But in recent days, as you said, the Biden administration has come out strongly in support of not just a 21% on guilty, but a global minimum tax tied to kind of the design of guilty. And countries have responded in different ways. So as you can imagine, with a global minimum tax and a project that's focused on tax competition, you'd get the countries that are high tax countries that don't really like tax competition siding with the Biden administration, while lower tax countries or countries that benefit from tax competition taking the other side. And that's kind of what we've seen recently with France and Germany kind of nodding towards the Biden administration saying, you know, maybe 21% global minimum rate would be fine, while other countries like Ireland with a 12.5% statutory rate, Hungary with a 9% statutory rate, and a couple other Eastern European jurisdictions saying, no, that's a bridge too far. 21% global minimum rate is much bigger commitment than they're comfortable with. And I think it's important to think of like what sort of compromise the U.S. is going to have to work out with itself in the context of, you know, whatever reconciliation package or infrastructure package would be paid for with corporate tax increases and particularly on foreign earnings and the negotiation or compromise the U.S. would have to work out with other countries. It's truly multidimensional negotiations at this point where all eyes are kind of on these products like the Senate white paper to actually figure out what Congress might actually be willing to change the law for relative to what the Biden administration is proposing. And then, of course, 
triangulating that with other countries. Now, certainly the OECD leadership at the OECD is very optimistic for this project. This is something that they put a lot of work into, and they're hopeful that there will be a high-level agreement this summer with more details to come later in the year. And from my perspective, if you get a high-level agreement or even the agreement in October, that's essentially a starting gun rather than the final discussion, because then you have to move into implementation, countries deciding if they're going to fully conform to what the OECD recommends, if it acts kind of like a template, or if there's flexibility there where the U.S. is just going to have a different rate and base and other countries are going to choose the you know rate and base for the minimum tax as they see fit. But there are two parts to this where on the one hand, you're working on a global minimum tax, both on outbound investment and on inbound investment, which is something we didn't get into, but it's the belt and suspenders approach to stopping tax competition. And then you have what's going to be a renegotiation of where companies owe taxes. So companies may start owing taxes in more tax jurisdictions if the negotiations go the direction um, that, that folks think. You know, from my position as an economist thinking through all these impacts, you know, I think one thing to be cautious about is the impact on cross-border investment. I'm not as concerned about companies being impacted for, you know, shifting financial profits around in low-tax jurisdictions, but sometimes that shifting activity facilitates real business investment in higher-tax jurisdictions or in, you know, even in developing countries. So it's going to be interesting to see how all these negotiations play out. But I think policymakers need to pay attention to the economics of multinationals and how they make investment choices, because all of these things look to me like they're going to complicate that calculus going forward. Yeah, there's always a balance between incentivizing, right, and then function and utility and how to actually get things to operate in the best way, to your point, right, not disincentivize or or preclude certain strong business transactions from taking place cross borders. Exactly. So, you know, looking at the guilty piece, the FDII piece, the beat aspect of the white paper, it sounds like in general, they're trying to simplify these three areas to remove certain potentially unforeseen interactions between them and as things are laid out in the TCJA. And it seems like, you know, there are provisions that are specifically in there to incentivize domestic R&D investment. And, you know, in terms of the deemed innovation income change they're proposing, for the FDI. So that's positive. And it's also promising that it feels like politicians on both sides of the aisle agree that the way that the TCJA was set up and, and some of the sunsetting programs and, and other aspects are not necessarily ideal. It seems a split is whether we're being fair or unfair, if you will, to, to corporations in terms of the tax perspective. But I think all sides can agree that you know any incentive to move R&D offshore is not going to be great for the country, you know, with all the studies that are out there that show the positive impacts of of R&D domestically. And hopefully those changes get made as soon as possible. You know, they say the first year of of a new administration is always the year that they try to get everything done. So hopefully we can make some of those changes as soon as possible. Yeah, I agree. Daniel, thank you so much again for joining us today. It's it's always a pleasure to speak with you and learn from you and, and hear your perspective on some of these aspects. And I know our audience appreciates it as well. Well, thank you so much for having me, Raheem.
Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp we want to thank daniel and raheem for being with us today and for a very insightful discussion we want to thank everyone at home for joining us don't forget to check out the entire suite of cross-border solutions tax podcasts on apple podcasts and Spotify. This podcast is worth two one-fifths of a CPE credit to get your credits email the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. This podcast was hosted by Matthew DeMello, edited and produced by Matthew DeMello and Andrew O'Donnell. Stephen Markow is our associate producer and writes our scripts. We'll catch everyone next time. <laughs> <laughs>